أعوذ بالله السميع العليم من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny اللهم صل على محمد Brothers, sisters and respected viewers السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and uh, Welcome to the continuation of our series on the afterlife. After we presented the importance of the topic of the afterlife, and after we spent a little bit of time understanding the topic of the soul, what we mean by the soul and the proofs for the immateriality of the soul and the alternative uh, version or vision for what a human being is, which is a materialist interpretation of the world. Uh, we moved into the topic of understanding or exploring the proofs for the afterlife. And we began as usual by presenting the rational arguments for not only the possibility of the afterlife, but for the necessity of the afterlife, that there needs to be, there has to be an afterlife. So the arguments that we presented uh, initially were based on uh, lessons that we had given in the past, which were based on the uh, argument, arguments based on the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so the attribute of wisdom, divine wisdom, and the attribute of justice, divine justice. And so once this is done, so this was more of the rational argumentation for the necessity of the afterlife. Inshallah, this part is clear. We moved into the scriptural argumentation, <clears throat> the Quranic argumentation for the afterlife. And of course, given that this is not a, a detailed you know, analysis of the topic. We're not going through the discussion of the narrations. We're limiting ourselves to the Holy Quran. When we look at what the Holy Quran says about the afterlife, we said that we can put the verses, we can regroup the verses into a number of categories. And this is where we start seeing that the Holy Quran has a certain progression in its logic. Or, you know, another way of putting it, we said there's almost a story being told by the Holy Quran. So the idea is that, first and foremost, we said when the Holy Quran deals with human beings, it wants them to have a very clear reason for taking any important decisions, for making any important decisions or positions in their lives. The Holy Quran says to a human being, if you want me to respect you, to respect your humanity and your, and your decision-making, then whenever you make a, an important decision, you need to be able to present a convincing argument for why you're doing what you're doing, why you're claiming what you're claiming. And we went through a number of verses of the Holy Quran to show that this is consistent across the board. The Holy Quran does that with pretty much any important topic, any important choice that a human being makes, especially in matters of belief that have, therefore, uh, an impact on action. So 
So the moment you believe in something, you're going to act differently. So the Holy Quran wants to make sure that in matters of belief, that your belief is on solid ground. And so we looked at what the Holy Quran does with the topic of the afterlife with regards to this, and we saw that it applies the same logic. It begins by saying, if you're claiming that the afterlife is impossible, or you're claiming that there is no afterlife, then you need to be able to provide some proof for this. And so we went through verses after verses of the Holy Quran to show that there are no proofs that have ever been or that can be presented for the topic of the afterlife in the sense of negating it, in the sense of showing that it cannot happen. So that's the first thing that the Holy Quran does. It takes out of the equation the possibility of having an argument that there is no afterlife. So no one can claim that there is any proof that there is no afterlife, first and foremost. So once this is done, and we also went through the verses of the Holy Quran, because someone may be surprised by this type of thinking. This is an important topic. It should be something that a human gives a lot of importance to. Before I say there is no afterlife and I can live my life however I wish, you would think that they took the time to think about it properly and to come up with solid, convincing proofs. And then we saw that there are no proofs. So how can it be so easy for some people to say there is no afterlife and I'm just going to live my life however I wish? And the Holy Quran answers this. And it gave us two answers, two types of verses that talk about this. The first type of verse that we saw is that the Holy Quran says human beings want to live completely free, unchained. They don't want anything, including beliefs, they don't want anything to limit their freedoms. So if you open the door to believing in a God and an afterlife, it means that you're going to have to live in a certain way that you're going to have to live in a way that perhaps forces you not to do certain things and forces you to do things that you may not feel like doing. Charity, sacrifice, whatever it may be that you don't really feel like doing. And on the other side, you want to do things and now suddenly you can't oppress and you can't commit acts of injustice against others. You have to do everything while keeping in mind that there is an afterlife and there's a reward and punishment. You have to live your life accordingly. Why open that door? Let's shut that door entirely from the beginning and say there is no afterlife so that I can continue to live my life however I want. So there are verses of the Holy Quran that talk about that and say, this is the reason why some people are going to reject any belief in the afterlife. Because human beings wish to live however they want and to continue to committing any types of acts and sins however they desire. The second reason that we mentioned was that The Holy Quran also says there are people who, as a result of the accumulation of sins and the accumulation of being exposed to corruption and perversion, they lose the ability to recognize the truth even if it's right in in front of them. They start seeing the truth as falsehood and falsehood as the truth. They made so many choices stubbornly knowing that this is wrong, and they kept doing it again and again. The Holy Quran says this becomes like filth or layers of of rust or, or sullying over the heart that no longer allows you to be able to see the truth. 
And this is your own choices. You did this with your own freedom of choice that suddenly resulted at some point after a long accumulation of this to the point where you're no longer able to see the truth even if it's right in front of you. You consider what others see as the truth, you consider it falsehood and the opposite. Things that others intuitively recognize and should see that this is clearly falsehood, you are able to distort that into truth. And so this is kind of a second answer that the whole Quran is providing. If someone wants to say, how come someone can sing solo and fail to use their logic to the point where they stop seeing that they don't even have any reason for rejecting the, the afterlife. These are two reasons given by the Holy Quran. So the first one being that, uh, or the second one being that you have committed so many sins and crimes and, and exposed yourself to so much corruption and being so stubborn for so long that now you're unable to see the truth when it's right in front of you. And secondly, you want to continue to live based on your desires and your personal whims. And you know that the moment you open the door to believing in an afterlife means you have to restrain and you have to live your life according to truth and to justice and to certain values and certain standards, which you may not wish to abide by. Okay, so this is what we covered until now. We want to move into the second category of verses. We said that the story or the logic, the progression of logic that the Holy Quran is using is basically saying, okay, do you have any proof that there's no afterlife? No, you don't. And here are some reasons why even though you don't, you continue to hold on to your false beliefs. That's what we covered until now. The next steps the Holy Quran is going to make, one after the other, so there's an increment here. The first one is going to be the most that you can claim after we saw that you have no proof that there's no afterlife, the most that you could claim is that this is highly unlikely. So we're going to deal with that. Now that we've dealt with all of this, you may still have some objections. You may still have some unanswered questions. We're going to address those. And then, so all of this, we could consider the Holy Quran as being in a defensive mode. We start by looking at those who hold the opposite viewpoint. So let's see what you have and dismantle it point by point. Now we're done. Now the Holy Quran goes on the offensive and it starts providing its own proofs that there is an afterlife. No, so I emptied anything that you may be carrying in terms of you know arguments and weapons and now I'm turning it and providing my own arguments, the Holy Quran says, to show you that there needs to be, there has to be an afterlife. And so these we can put into big categories of verses that fall into the divine promise and some logical proofs from the Holy Quran, okay? So where we're at right now, based on this slide, is uh, at number two. So now we want to move into the, the story of, we know that there is no argument that there is no afterlife. We've established that. Now we want to move into the Holy Quran saying, let's look at some examples that will show you that it is not as unlikely as you may think. So the first series of verses in the Holy Quran, and you know, there's dozens upon dozens of these verses in the Quran. We've only taken a couple here. The verses of the Holy Quran that basically tell human beings, look around you. 
if you were to look at nature, you would see that this topic of the resurrection, this topic of death and life is happening all around you all the time. So this matter that you consider to be very unlikely, very improbable, is in fact not only possible, it's reality. You're just too distracted from looking at it. You fail, you, uh, your negligence because of your distractions in this life, you fail to see these things as being very solid, clear proofs for the resurrection, even though they're right in front of you, all around you. And so all of these verses, we can lump them into the general category of uh, cycle of life and death or the cycle of nature or the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the seasons in the world, just the normal seasons. Okay. So if you look, alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah. So again, the idea here is that the Holy Quran is making a point. And if you notice how the verses, these verses are usually presented, it always asks the question, have they not seen Everybody has seen. So why does the Holy Quran keep repeating that? It's like the Holy Quran is saying you're actually not seeing it. It's right in front of you. Look again so that you see the point we're making. The point, the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the world in this manner is so that you extract this lesson from it. So if you haven't, you haven't seen what's right in front of you. Okay? So for instance, in, in some of the verses the Holy Quran says, then contemplate Think about, meditate, contemplate the imprints of Allah's mercy. It's although you can see the traces of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagine, you know, someone walked somewhere and you can see the traces they've left behind. The Holy Quran says, look at the world and recognize the imprints, the traces of Allah's mercy. Okay, so that's first point. And then it continues. How he gives life to the earth after its death. So why? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create the world in this way? So that you see that the same example, the same pattern that's being presented here is actually the pattern that you're going to find with your own life that's going to end with death and then you're going to come back to life. How he gives life to the earth after its death, indeed the same will give life back to the dead. So if you think that this is improbable, not very likely, then do you not see that this is actually already happening right in front of you? And the same one, the same God who did all of this that you're witnessing is going to be bringing you back in the same manner. So it is as likely or unlikely that it would happen. And in, in this case, it's already happening. So it's not only likely, it's reality. Okay. And then the, 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 the verse uh, ends by saying, for he has power over all things. So in case there is any doubt, any question that it's unlikely because it would take awesome power to do this, the verse seals the deal by saying he has power over all things. So this takes out of the equation the whole point of likely and unlikely. Okay, and we're going to come back to that, inshallah, in the next lessons too. And another Verse, so these are verses 5 and 6 from chapter 22. It says, and so here I, I intentionally put the two verses. You really need to read them together. And then the, the argument, you, you see the argument fully, fully elaborated. It says, O people, 
if you are, and this is very important, when the Holy Quran talks, it always tells you who it's talking to. When it's talking about Allah, for instance, Allah that you have to apply in your daily life, it's usually going to say, for instance, right? You have to be a believer first. So now it's talking to people who are already Muslims. They've said their Shahada. They've claimed that they believe in God and his prophet and his Quran. So it's talking to them. Other verses, the Holy Quran is going to talk to everyone. Okay, this is different. This is to establish the foundations that should be universal to everyone. So in this verse, it starts by saying, oh, people, I'm talking to you, human beings, all of you. Oh, people, if you are in doubt about the resurrection, consider that we indeed created you from dust, then from a drop of seminal fluid, then from a clinging mass, then from a fleshy tissue, partly formed and partly unformed so that we may manifest our power to you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always, he's not only saying, consider that this is how things are created and think about them. It's think about why would God have created the world in this way? He could have created things differently. He could have made you a type of creature that just emerges fully formed. But no, he makes you go through all of these phases so that you see really what's going on and you understand the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that we may manifest our power to you. We establish in the wounds whatever we wish for a specified term. Then we bring you forth as infants. Then we rear you so that you may come of age. Then there are some of you who are taken away. And there are some of you who are relegated to the nethermost age. So some of you die young and some of, them, some of you die old so that he knows nothing after having possessed some knowledge to the point where you live so old that you lose your cognitive, your intellectual faculties. So the Holy Quran is, is basically saying, look at your own cycle. You think that you're all powerful and you're, you're defying God and you're thinking that you, you know everything and you're objecting and you're questioning and this is what you are. This is what you were. We made you, we reared you, we brought you up. You knew nothing, you had no power. You came into this world. We made you grow and become powerful and now you're objecting to us and soon you will get really old to the point of going back like you were when the Quran says you were brought into this world knowing nothing. So it says, and then after all of this, you go back to knowing nothing if you live old enough, if you do the full cycle. Okay, after having possessed some knowledge and then the Quran switches. So consider all of this and then let's look, that's you. That's if you had the intelligence to look at your own selves and look all around you and you see the earth lifeless. Yet when we send down water upon it, it stirs and swells and grows every delightful kind. That is because Allah is the truth and it is he who revives the dead and he has power over all things. So again, the same logic. So you see the cycle. If you think about it, you see that the reason one Layer one, if you look at how things are happening, you should see the resurrection and recognize it in front of you. It's happening. You just need to see it. Two, why don't you think more than what you're seeing and wonder, but why is it created this way? God could have created it in a different way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, I created it this way specifically so that I show you what resurrection looks like on a daily basis in front of you so that you don't think it's unlikely. So you know that I have power over all things, including bringing life out of death and bringing death out of life. 
Okay, so these are two verses, and there are many of them. I'm sure you can go back now and recognize this pattern elsewhere. So that's the idea of looking at how the Holy Quran starts to dismantle the idea that this is unlikely. This is not probable. Okay, one first category of verses, looking at the natural world, looking at the cycle of life and death and the world. The second group of verses, for instance, and this is, I'm mentioning it as an example, a really good example, the story of the people of the cave. And now we don't have time to go, inshallah, one day we can go through the, the whole story of the people of the cave, go back in Surah Al-Kahf, 18, chapter 18, and look at the verses from 9 to 26. It's not very long. In short, the story is that a number of young men were living under a king, and they wanted to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they saw fit, as they thought Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to be worshipped. But they lived under a king and in a kingdom where this was impossible and people would be killed and persecuted for doing that. So they ran away, each on their own, and they all met. So depending on the ruwayat that you follow, they were between three and seven men, and they had a dog. And so they encounter each other, they were afraid of each other at the beginning because they thought maybe they, the other person that they're meeting is going to be one of those people who persecutes them or you know, brings them back to, to the king and his men and they get killed, for instance. So until they felt safely safe with each other, they ran away, they found a cave, they went inside the cave to hide, and they ended up sleeping in the cave. And then they woke up. And when they woke up, they were not sure for how long they slept. They noticed themselves having changed, but they did not know for how long they slept. And so they got hungry. They took out the little bit of money that they had, and they said, okay, to one of them, they gave him the money, and they said, okay, you go get food and take this money and try to you know, remain very unknown and, and uh, you know, uh, don't attract any attention to us. And so he went. The problem is that when he reached there, obviously he was dressed differently. He looked different. And the money that he had, people no longer use that type of money anymore. They knew that this is a completely different type of money. He did not recognize the place. People did not recognize him. So he wanted to buy food. People started running behind him, knowing that there's something going on. He came back to the cave and they hid. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the circumstances such that the cave was closed. And they are still dwelling in their cave. And we have in our narrations that they will come out at the end of times with Imam al-Mahdi, he will take them out. In any case, the story is the point that we're trying to concentrate on here. So again, the idea is you're supposed to be believing in the Holy Quran. And the Holy Quran, there's a reason why it's talking about them. It's because many of the perhaps people around the Holy Prophet would have known some bits and pieces or all of this story. So the Holy Quran is referring to it. Okay, remember, there are people of the cave, you've heard those reports. So here the Quran validates that those are true. So what's the point of this story? The story is, is almost fantastical. You hear about it and the Quran, the punchline of the story is that they did not know for how long they lived. They, they did not know for how long they slept. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers, and they slept for 300 years and nine. Okay, so 309 years. Or according to some commentators, the Holy Quran makes a point to say 300 years and nine years, because apparently according to the calculation, the solar year and the lunar year are different. 
So in solar years, it would be 300. And in lunar years, it would be 309 because the lunar year is 10 days shorter than the solar year. In any case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they went to the cave and Allah, to protect them, he made them fall asleep for during that whole time. Okay? That's the superficial reading of the story. But the Holy Quran tells us more about this. Why did this happen? We have the key given to us in the story. So in, we said the story is from verses 9 to 26. In verse 21, the Quran says, Thus did we make their case known to the people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, I could have kept that whole story secret. No one knows about it. But no, I made sure that people know and that they themselves, those young men, they themselves know what happened. Why? That they might know that the promise of Allah is true. Which promise? Resurrection. That there is a life after death. In case there is doubt, if you read the, inshallah, one day we get into the details of the story. Those men did not have a prophet sent to them with a scripture and all of that. This was based on their intuition. This was based on their fitrah and understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to act. Okay? So they had a purity of heart, a spiritual purity that meant Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to preserve that and reward them in this life before the next for that type of purity that they had and the sacrifices they were making. So... I would say, you know, in cases like those, if anyone deserves to receive that type of grace from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that type of, you know, in case there's any doubt, then those are the people who receive those, right? In addition to your theoretical knowledge, you're getting the experiential knowledge. You're living it. You're not only getting the uh, kind of theoretical abstract teachings. Someone tells you, like I'm doing right now, teaching the arguments, they lived it. They lived the sleep of 300 years and woke up. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do that, what's the difference between that and dying and waking back up? There's no difference. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do that, he can do the other one too. Okay? That's the idea. So the verse says itself, it says, thus did we make their case known to the people that they might know, they might, the young men themselves know that the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is true and that there can be no doubt about the hour of judgment. So to them and to the people. So the people who know about them, and now everybody because of the whole Quran, this is the point of those men. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals their story to everyone, that everyone considers this story as proof for the resurrection, as proof for the afterlife. Okay? So it does remove the unlikelihood, that's one. Two, Again, I think we talked about sleep and how the Holy Quran presents sleep as a minor form of resurrection. You're basically seeing the existence of the soul, the independent existence of the soul, and that both the body and the soul can live without the other, right? That's what we saw in Surah Al-Zukhruf when it talks about, uh, Surah Al-Zumar when it talks about sleep. And in this verse, we see it again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is linking this whole notion of resurrection with the notion of sleep. Okay? In their story, they slept. And this, there's a, a kind of a, a hidden, a secondary hidden meaning in there for us, for everybody. To remember, every time you're going to sleep, it's the equivalent of going to your death. So you need to keep that in mind. You need to appreciate what's happening when you sleep 
So theologically, for your beliefs, to keep in mind that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's as easy for him to bring you back from the dead as it is to wake you up in the morning after you sleep. That's one. There's a theological component, a belief component. There is a ethical component to this for yourself. To remember you've just been given an opportunity. You just received one more day, one more chance to add to the good of your life, to do something with the new day that you've been given. You could have not awoken, but you did. You just got another chance. And if you read, there are short short invocations that are mustahab, that are recommended to read in the mornings. You see that many of them talk about this point. To thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having given you one more day, for having brought you back into the world, for having allowed you to kind of awaken and allowed you to praise him one more time. Okay, so this is all to keep in mind. This is the notion of sleep and what it means. And if you read the, the invocations, the adriya that we have that are recommended before you go to sleep, you see that you're basically saying some of the same words that you'd say if you were to die. You're saying your shahada, you're proclaiming that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your God, that this is your religion, that you recognize these as your truths. You're getting ready to leave this world. And if you come back, great. If you don't, you left this world fully stable, satisfied, solid in your faith. Okay? So all of this to say, inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prolongs all of your lives. All of this to say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using the example of sleep as a minor type of death and resurrection. The same cycle. We go through it every day. So while the story of the people of the cave has a supernatural component, it also has this very applicable component to our lives, okay? The last point specifically has to do with this second item that I just mentioned. These stories are scattered throughout the Holy Quran. We saw in the first category, we saw it's all about the natural order. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is, the, this is based on the laws of nature that anyone can see. This is how nature works. Very simple, anyone can study, oh people. Have you not seen how we've created you? Have you not seen how, you know, the land is dead and we bring it back to life? So on and so forth. Then you have these other stories. These other stories break away from the laws of nature. So these cannot be taken in complete isolation with the stories about the natural order of things. This is a reminder that, yes, there is a natural order of things. But never forget that this is all within the power of God. The power of God doesn't go away because Allah has put a natural order and natural laws and things are supposed to work based on the material causes that he has provided for them in this world. This other hidden to us that we consider supernatural, miraculous, so on, so forth, is always happening. We don't see it, which is fine. So the Holy Quran has to bring our attention to it so that we don't forget. And so that we don't limit all of our understanding just based on here are the material causes, here are the laws of nature. I rely only on those and I forget that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all powerful and that all of these laws are within, completely within his grip, completely and absolutely within his power. He does with them as he wishes. And we may fail to see how this fits into a higher order that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
has also put in place, but it's still happening. And so these stories are constant reminders of that. Okay, so that's one, uh, the uh, second category. The third category of verses that are dismantling the idea that the resurrection is unlikely, that it cannot happen, it's improbable. And the stories in the Holy Quran, specifically about certain animals. So the Holy Quran is going from the furthest to the closest. Now, certain cases of animals where the animal has completely, the body of the animal has died, it has decomposed, it should not be possible for that animal to come back to life. And the Holy Quran says, and we brought it back to life, once again, as proof for the resurrection. Okay? The next, if you follow the, the logic, obviously the next one is going to be examples of people coming back. That's the, the sequence. You know, from plants, animals, and now we're going to go to human beings. So in, in Surah Al-Baqarah 260, it says, and this is a, the famous story of Prophet Ibrahim salam. He asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, when Ibrahim said, my Lord, show me how you revive the dead. Now, of course, here, someone may think, this is Prophet, this is Ibrahim alayhi salam. How could he ever ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala something that gives us the impression that maybe he did not believe or he had doubts? We've talked about this a lot when we talked about prophethood. We said that the levels of knowledge are infinite. And so when a prophet is asking for to see something or to witness something or to know something, it's usually not what you and I are asking for. We may have a very theoretical question. You know, how do you reconcile this and that? They seem contradictory. That's not what the prophets are asking. The prophets know all of this. They know it intuitively. They know it without the teaching of books and arguments and theory. What they're asking for is the experiential knowledge. They want to go through the experience themselves because this gives you a different type of faith, a different type of belief than just knowing something in theory. We've given the example, I think, in the past of imagine someone who has never seen a fire a child, let's say a child of a few years, he's never seen a fire. You try to explain a fire to them. They might get some dimensions, some aspects of that, and others they will not get. And then imagine that you show them a fire from afar. Okay, now they know a little bit more. Now you take them and you bring them close enough to the fire that they start feeling the heat and they see the light of the fire. That's different. Imagine that child actually put his hand in the fire and it got burnt for just a second. We don't want to torture the, the poor child. Okay, that's a different kind of knowledge of the fire than the idea or the image of the fire that he had. And even afterwards, after he got burnt, he saw it and he got burnt. Let's say he remembers this later. So the image, the mental image that he has of the fire is a different type of knowledge than when his hand is actually in the fire, than when he is close enough and he feels a little bit of the heat and the light, but not getting burnt, then seeing a fire from far, then just having a vague idea of what fire may be. These are different types of knowledge. These are different degrees and types of knowledge. When prophets ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala these types of requests, they're certainly not asking the theoretical type of knowledge. They're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to experience the things that we're talking about with, you know, theoretical 
points, you and I, the prophets want to experience those. So Prophet Ibrahim السلام, this is his request to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In some narrations, we are told Prophet Ibrahim السلام, saw a carcass and he wondered, so if this carcass is being completely disintegrated and there are other animals coming to eat it, how does this come back to life? He doesn't want the theoretical answer. He knows Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can bring it back to life. He wants to experience how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings it back to life. So now, with this in mind, we read the verse, and when Abraham said, my Lord, show me how you revive the dead. He said, do you not believe? He said, yes, indeed. But it is in order that my heart may be at rest. I want a different type of belief. He said, take four kinds of birds. So here in some narrations, we're told that the four types of birds, it's not important. We're told it's a peacock, a crow, a pigeon, and a rooster. Four different kinds of birds. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, cut them up to the point where you not only cut them up, you mix them up, mix the body parts up completely. And go to 10 mountaintops and put a part of that mixture on each one of the top of those 10 mountains. Okay, so the verse continues. He said, take four of the birds, then cut them into pieces, place a part of them on every mountain, then call them. They will come to you hastening. So Ibrahim did as he was told, and the birds came back to life, and they came to him. And know that Allah is almighty, always. So the idea here is to show that animals that should not be coming back to life completely, entirely decomposed, mixed up, they have come back to life. And again, this is Ibrahim salam himself. So it's not, Ibrahim salam is not being told, stand there and look how God does it. Ibrahim salam is told, you cut them up, you mix up the parts, you put them on mountaintops and you call them and they will come to you. So Ibrahim salam is the one resurrecting them through his call. Of course, always through the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this is different than telling him, just stand on the side and look. And we're going to show you how it's done. No, no. You're going to do it so that you get what you asked. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his prayer and showed him exactly how it's done by giving him the power to resurrect. Okay, and we're going to come back to that because this is not the only instance of that. So we talked about the degrees of knowledge. And the second thing, yeah, very quickly is... So was Ibrahim salam asking about resurrection? Here, you know, if we want to be technical about the tafsir, he might not specifically, he might specifically be asking about something we're going to refer to later. We're going to call it an objection. This is the objection of what happens when bodies decompose and then they get mixed up with other bodies. What happens in those cases? Can that same body come back? Is it fair? What if one body is supposed to go to heaven and the other to hell and there are parts of one into the other? How does that work? Inshallah, we're going to come back to that when we talk about the, some of the objections. Okay? And of course, so this is one instance of animals coming back. The other one is mentioned in the man. It's the donkey. There's a, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 259. It says, or take the example of the one. It doesn't say who, who he is. Most likely in all the majority of the commentators, they say this was a prophet. This was Rasayr, He was a prophet and he went to a town and he saw that it was completely 
annihilated, decrepit, decomposed, there's nothing left. And he was thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how he brings things back from the dead. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted him to experience it, to show him more, okay, than just a theoretical knowledge, once again. Or take the example of the one who passed by a town, all in ruins to its roofs. So there's nothing left. Okay? From the ground to the roof, it's all decomposed. He said, oh, how shall Allah ever bring it back to life after its death? So Allah caused him to die for a hundred years. Then he raised him back again. He said, and so in the narrations we are told, an angel spoke to him, it was revealed to him, asking him, how long did you carry thus? You lied down like this for how long? He said, perhaps a day or a part of a day. Why? Because we're told in the narrations that when this happened, it was early in the day. So it was morning or before noon. And when he woke up, it was around sunset. So he thought that he slept kind of a full day or a part of a day, a few hours, or maybe a day until the next, right? Not more. So he said, a day or a part of a day? He said, nay, rather you have remained thus a hundred years. But look at your food and your drink. They show no sign of age. This is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to show him his full power, both sides. So on one side, we're told he had fruits like grapes. He had the fruits that we all know when we have them in our places, in our homes, we know how quickly these are the first foods to go bad. You get the fruit flies right away and they start going bad. So he had fruits that should have decomposed very quickly. Allah subhanahu wa shows him. He tells him, look at the fruits. Nothing happened to them. We kept them intact so that you see the power of Allah. If he wants to keep something intact or you, he keeps you intact. Nothing happens to you. But, and look at your donkey and that we make of you a sign to the people, look at the bones. The donkey had completely decomposed after 100 years. Completely dead and decomposed, and there's only bones left, right? Allah subhanahu wa raised it back to the dead in front of him. So he told him, look at the bones, how we bring them together and clothe them with flesh. When this was shown clearly to him, he said, I know that Allah has power over all things. Okay, so this is another verse. Three more uh, verses, and this is now really looking at the people coming back to life. There's a couple of times in the Holy Quran, I don't want to take too long, so I'm not going into the details here. There are a couple of times in the Holy Quran when Prophet Musa السلام, encounters death. There are a couple of them that it might have been the same case, the same story, or they might have been two different stories. Okay, in any case. And this one, when you said, so Allah subhanahu wa is talking to Bani Israel through the Holy Prophet. He's telling them, when you said to Prophet Musa salam, O Musa, we will not believe you until we see Allah visibly. They would not believe him when he would tell them, I went and, you know, he goes into his uh, seclusion and isolation in worship of Allah subhanahu wa to receive the revelation. He comes back to give the revelation to the people. They would tell him, we don't believe you. This is not God talking to you. If it's true, then show us your God. We want to experience everything you're experiencing. Otherwise, we would not believe you. So he told them, you're ignorant, you're fools. Stop asking for this. They did not believe. So he shamefully came and asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what they were asking. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one version of the 
verses, he tells them, choose 70 men. And so we are told Bani Israel chose their best 70 men. They might not have been of those who did not believe or doubt him. So they said, okay, fine, we're going to choose the best, our best. So 70 men were chosen from Bani Israel. They all went with Musa alayhi salam. We're not really told what happened. All we know is there is a sa'iqah that happened, something that happened. It could have been a sound, a blast, a light, a nuclear explosion that's radioactive. I don't know what it is. Something happened, they all died. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings them back to life. The Prophet Musa salam right away praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thanks him for bringing them back to life. He's basically indirectly telling them, I told you you're fools. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically telling them, you can't even withstand this little blast. Perhaps it was a light, a very strong light or a very strong sound, and they all died. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling them, you want to see me? You can't even take a little blast. A little blast killed you all, and you're asking to see me directly, otherwise you won't believe. That, that was the point of that story. Okay, so Musa alayhi salam, they said, oh Musa, we will not believe you until we, will, we see Allah visibly. Thereupon a thunderbolt seized you as you looked on, then we raised you up after your death so that you might give thanks. We'd be grateful. And another verse says, and when you killed a soul, again, Bani Israel. Long story short, we're told most likely that there is a man who was after the wealth of another man, and he knew that the only way to get it is if that other man dies and he inherits it. They're part of the same family. So this happened. He killed him and he blamed someone else. And they came to Prophet Musa salam, who initially told them there is a way to know. We can raise this person back from the dead based on what Allah instructs Prophet Musa salam, tells him you can bring him back from the dead to know truly how all of this happened. So he told them all you need to do is go slaughter a cow. But they started creating excuses. Yeah, but which cow and which one exactly and we're not sure. And so every time they pushed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala added more conditions to the cow until basically the cow that they had to slaughter was a unique cow. There's, there's no, no two cows. There, there's not another cow like it. So they had to pay a huge fee. That brings us into another story of how that huge sum of money made it to the owner of that cow. Okay, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made all of this happen because he was such a good son to his father. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to reward him by making sure that the cow that he owned would be rewarded, would be sold with a huge sum. Okay? So in any case, that was the yellow cow. That's the cow after which Surah Al-Baqarah is called. Right? That's the story. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them you have to slaughter a cow. Finally, they find the cow that they're supposed to slaughter. They buy it. They bring it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them to take out bones of it and to do a certain ritual and hit the man with some of the bones of that cow. And that man wakes up back from the dead. And he explains the story of how he was killed. Who killed him? Why his body was left there? Why it was done? And then he goes back to death. So that's the story. Okay. So in short, the verse says, now we have this context. And when you kill the soul. So when someone in Bani Israel killed someone and accused one another about it, and that it was going to cause a fitna, and Allah was to expose whatever you were concealing, we said, strike him with a piece of it, a piece of the cow, 
Thus does Allah revive the dead and show you his signs so that you may apply reason. Okay? And then the last one, very clear. As we said, Prophet Ibrahim, we may think it's surprising. He brought some birds back from the dead. Prophet Isa, very explicitly and openly, and we're not the only ones who believe this, he was bringing the dead back to life. So part of the miracles of Prophet Isa, when he says to his people, I have certainly brought you a sign from your Lord. I will create for you out of clay the form of a bird. Then I will breathe into it, and it will become a bird by Allah's permission. And he continues with his miracles. He lists them one after the other. And then he says, and I revive the dead by Allah's permission. And we know Prophet Isa had many, many of these miracles. Okay? So all of this, inshallah, to provide some of the arguments or counter-arguments from the Holy Quran to dismantle the notion that the resurrection and coming back to life after death is really not that unlikely. It has happened a lot. So we went through four types. The natural world, the people of the cave, animals coming back to life, and human beings coming back to life. So this is kind of a quick excursion in the verses of the Quran to see how it undid the idea that the resurrection is unlikely. Okay? No, it's very likely. It, in fact, has happened a lot, and it's happening all around you. Okay, that's a short answer. Inshallah, the next piece, we go back to the logic that we presented, the next piece in all of this is that we move to maybe now someone still has some objections or questions. So this is what the Quran is saying. You may still have some objections. So I'm going to answer those for you. So now we know you have no proof for your position. The most you could say it's unlikely I've also dismantled the fact that it's unlikely. It's very likely. In fact, it's happening. You may still have a few questions. Let me answer those. And then let me provide you with my proofs that it has to happen because it's a necessity. Okay? So that's, inshallah, for things to come. So next time we meet, inshallah, we go through the answers to some of these objections. So this is all for the lecture part. It was a little bit longer than hoped. Um, I apologize for that. So let's stop here and then... I'll take a few minutes after. So very quickly, I thought I'd just take five minutes, inshallah, not more, because I already spoke for, for too long. So this is certainly not a lecture, just a reminder. We're going through the birth anniversary of Imam Sadiq, We spoke a little bit about the Holy Prophet last time. In, in most uh, narrations in, in our school, they're both born on the same same day or one day difference. So 16 or 17 of Rabi'a al-Allah. So instead of, you know, inshallah, one day we, we dedicate a full lecture to the life of Muhammad al-Sadiq, which deserves a lot more than one lecture. Muhammad al-Sadiq, his, his imamah was one of the longest imamah. So it was about 34 or 30, 35 years. So just looking at the period, the length, the duration of the Imam of Imam Sadiq which tends to be what we concentrate on, would, you know, it would be justifiable to spend a lot more time than say the Imam of an Imam of a few years old. That's Imam Hadi is perhaps the only one with a longer Imam. That's one. And secondly, it was a period of huge turmoil. This is when the 
Khilafah, the dynasty of the Umayyads, was basically crumbling. So that was the beginning of his imamah. And the last 16 years of his life, the Abbasids came to power 132, year 132. The imam passes away 148. So 16 years of his life, the last 16, the second half of his imamah, is under the Abbasids. So, and there's a huge and very quick pace of change. And then there's revolutions happening. There's a revolution, the uprising of Zayd ibn Ali, the son of Imam al-Sajjad There's a revolution or revolutions of the Hassaniyyah. We, we mentioned those a little bit in the past. And that's the Zakiyyah, Muhammad Parmi. Against the Abbasid or Umayyad? Both. So initially, the, the, they were all against the Umayyads. But, you know, Ben al-Abbas, they, they, they paid their allegiance to Nafs al-Zakiyya. The, the Sayyid Hassani from the descendants of Imam al-Hassan salam, they basically said, as soon as we break down the Umayyads, you are our Khalifa. And then, as soon as they took power, they killed all of his followers, he ran away, finally they caught him, jailed him, and then he was killed too. So, this also continued, and it was a time when the Islamic world was expanding very quickly, which meant that Muslims, scholars and otherwise, were now being exposed to all sorts of new different philosophies and cultures and languages, and they were coming into the Islamic world, which was considered, you know, the most advanced at that time, and they would go right to the core of it. So they come to Medina Munawwara, for instance, or the city of Kufa, and Imam salam, it's maybe not very known, but Imam Sadiq lived in Medina most of his life for about for two years. He lived in Kufa as well. Anyways, that's, that's a whole other topic. But generally speaking, it was a time of, so there's political instability. There's kind of cultural, educational uh, change and turmoil happening. But this also gave opportunities for the Imam to work because those in power were kind of distracted with all sorts of other things. Okay, and so this is where he fully leveraged that opportunity into disseminating as much knowledge as he could, especially after the generations since the Holy Prophet where this had become absolutely impossible, right? We said the, the Khulafat were against the writing or the spreading of the reports and narrations of the Holy Prophet and so on and so forth. This continued until about year 99, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. He was the one who kind of flipped the equation but by then, the majority of the companions had been killed or died. You know, at least one generation after the companions, they were all gone. The companions were dead. The, their second generation, their, their sons, their children were dead. So we're now year 100 and some. So 100 years or so about after the passing away of the Holy Prophet. And the Islamic world doesn't have anything really authentic, reliable to rely on as saying this is coming directly from the Holy Prophet. So this is where Imam Sadiq, Imam al-Bakr, Imam Sadiq really step up. This is where they start spreading this knowledge back into the Islamic world. Okay? So this was the role of Imam Sadiq. In any case, we don't have time to go through the details of this. So I thought at least to mention this one report from the Imam. And there's many of them. And inshallah, maybe one day... I think it might be a good idea if there's interest in it. We take these reports. There's a few of them. There's a much longer one. There's a few that are really worth looking at. But there's a longer one that I think really deserves to be studied uh, meticulously and very well so that we know about it more. 
these are reports that come to us from Imam Sadiq where he talks about who his Shia are and how they're supposed to be. Okay, so this is one such narration. And to us, we're supposed to have a special relationship with Imam Sadiq we're, we're not supposed to be just Shia. There are other Shias too. There are Ismailiyah, and there are Zaydiyah, and there are other types of Shia. We're supposed to be the Ja'fariyah. We're supposed to be the ones who took our religion from Imam Sadiq and we are the same ones as the Ithni Ashariya, the ones who believe in the 12 Imams. But if we want to carry the name of Imam Sadiq we need to know a little bit about him. So I thought, you know, all I wanted to do was to just report this one narration from the Imam, where in fact he gave this to one of his companions, Zayd al-Shaham. He was one of the companions of the Imam. The Imam gave him this message to go and spread to the Shia, to spread to his followers. So I thought I would just read it uh, without too much explanation. I think it's very clear, just so that we have it in mind. I think it's a nice, simple, beautiful reminder from our Imam. So he says to Zayd al-Shaham, Communicate my salutations to those who obey me and who follow my instructions. So, inshallah, this is the Shia, and inshallah, we are of them, and it's reaching us, alhamdulillah. And tell them the following. I order you to fear God, exalted is he, to be cautious in your religious affairs, and to struggle in the way of God. So put a lot of effort for God. Be truthful in all that you say and be trustworthy when you are entrusted. Prolong your prostration before God. So take time when you pray, really attach yourself to God. And be good neighbors. And if you go back, uh, as we said, we don't want to explain all of this, but an Islam neighbor is not your next door neighbor. Yes, that is your next door neighbor, but it's a lot more, right? Imam Ali السلام, in his last will, when he talks to Imam Hassan, Imam Hussain he tells them, you know, uh, take good care, extreme care with your neighbors. And then he adds, he says, the Holy Prophet used to recommend taking good care of your neighbors so much that we swear, we thought that he was going to make them inheritors. You know, just like when someone passes away, those who inherit him are his family members, their blood relatives, right? So Imam Ali says, we swear I swear we thought that the Holy Prophet, like he, he said that they are so close that they're no different than your family, right? That's how you're supposed to deal with your neighbors. And then we have other narrations, many of them saying that your neighbor is not one door, not two, not three, but up to 70. And there are even higher numbers, but the 70 is a very popular one in Islam. 70 basically means that this is your, the community in which you live. These are the people you're supposed to take care of. And if you combine it with the other narration, you have to deal with them as though you would deal with your family members, as though they would be your inheritors if you were to die. Okay? So when the imam says that, and there's no condition here. It doesn't have to be a believer or not, a Muslim or not, just by virtue of neighborhood. Okay? Take care of your neighborhood. Take care of your neighbors. Be that kind of neighbor. For those... All of this, all these simple but hard things, those were the teachings with which Muhammad, peace upon him, was sent. This is why the Holy Prophet was sent, these things. Be trustworthy over anything that you have been entrusted. 
whether the one who entrusted you was virtuous or sinful. If someone expects you to give back or to act with trust, trustworthiness, don't disappoint, regardless of who they are. For the messenger of God used to order his followers to return even the thread and the needle. So something as insignificant, if someone was to leave a whole bunch of stuff with you, valuable things, and included in there was a thread and a needle, the Holy Prophet would make sure to tell his followers, return everything, including the thread and the needle. Don't leave the thread with you. Stay in touch with everyone. And so the, the hadith itself says, Okay, so, but I think in modern times, I'm translating. And when I translate out of literary, I tell you guys, stay in touch with everyone. Attend their funerals. Visit their sick. Recognize their rights over you. When one of you becomes cautious in his religious affairs and truthful in his sayings and trustworthy in his actions and well-mannered with everyone, it shall be said of him, this is a Ja'far. This is a follower of Ja'far, Ja'far ibn Muhammad. And that, the fact that they say that about one of you, and that pleases me and makes me happy. For it shall be said, these are the manners of Ja'far. But if you do not behave as such, then I shall feel its unhappiness and shame, and it shall be said, these are the manners of Ja'far. I swear that my father told me when, I would, when a Shia of Ali is in a tribe, he will be its best. I translated it as its best because that's a superficial meaning. But he says Zayna. So Zayn is not just that you are the best. It's like you, you are the beauty of that tribe. You are the ornament of that tribe. Okay? The most trustworthy, the most observant of rights, the most truthful in speech. And it is with him that they entrust their inheritance and their valuables. To him they point when it is asked, who is the best among us, the most trustworthy, and the most truth, trust, uh, truthful, truthful. And there's a lot of other narrations that come in support of this. We have narrations from Sadiq and others that say, if you are a Shia, then you have to be the best. In any group of 10,000, you have to be the best in everything so that you aspire to being a Shia of the Imams. That's how the Imams want you. Okay? So to me, this is a glimpse and perhaps a, a more manageable hadith that I thought I would share with you guys, it's a reminder to me and to everyone that if we want to represent the Imam, this is how we represent the Imam. And these are very practical, concrete actions that I think all of us can, can inshallah work on. So if there are any questions, concerns, comments, you can use the chat, you can share them in any way you wish. Uh, and we can start here, certainly. Uh, anything regarding Imam Sadiq or the uh, topic that we presented today. So the likelihood versus unlikelihood of the afterlife and the examples used in the Quran for that topic. Questions, concerns, comments? Nothing? All clear? All clear, inshallah. Yeah. Just checking the chat. Yeah, so there's one question. 
So the question is, um, I have a question. You mentioned the story of the cave from the whole Quran. How do we strengthen our relationship or our connection with Imam Mahdi Ta'ala it's a, it's a really good question, and uh, thank you for asking it. Um, a longer answer to this, because this question was asked uh, a few weeks ago, and we dedicated a full lecture to it, where we talked specifically about the relationship that we're supposed to have with Imam Mahdi and what should be expected of us during this time when the Imam is not seen to us, we don't see him, and so we may feel disconnected from the Imam. And we often hear that we're supposed to wait for the Imam. So what does that mean? And we said that it's certainly not the idea of being passive, just waiting for things to happen to you. The idea is that there's a responsibility and there is preparatory work that needs to take place that means that we are supposed to move into an area where it's constant work. Everybody is needed to the capacity that they can provide preparatory work. Society needs to be fixed from every angle. Work is needed, that's the work of the Imam. But for the Imam to come into the world and start working, he needs groundwork to have, hap to have happened. These are the material causes. Your job is to be part of those material causes. Inshallah, if you can, please refer to the lecture that we gave um, regarding the relationship that we're supposed to have with uh, Imam al-Mahdi al-Sharif. And if you have any more questions, we come back to uh, this topic, inshallah, in more detail. There's certainly a lot more to be said than what we have covered. Uh, inshallah, this was uh, good and useful. So I think that's it, unless there are any other questions, concerns.